November is a time of reflection as we get closer to the end of the year and celebrate Thanksgiving at the end of the month. When we reflect on our life, there are two kinds of reflections, positive reflection and negative reflection. Positive reflection is called Thanksgiving and negative reflection is regret. Today, I want us to examine our negative reflection and I want everyone to know that our negative reflection actually can bring forth positive outcomes by grace of God. Someone said, like Christ who was crucified between two thieves, many of us crucified ourselves between two thieves, regret of the past and fear of the future. Regret of the past and the fear of the future are the two great thieves that steal God's love and joy from our lives. And Bible tells us that with God, we can not only overcome any negative reflection, but actually transform our regret into repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So today, I want to share with you how to redeem our regret with a godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. How do we overcome and transform our regret? We need to learn three truths about godly sorrow. But before we learn about the godly sorrow, we need to see first the context of our, our passage today. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 to 8. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by coming of Titus. The context of today's story is the com coming of Titus. Do you remember Titus? The last time Paul mentioned Titus was chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12. Paul said, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord has opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother uh, Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So if you remember, I said the 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 4, this a huge chunk of the letter was actually digression. And also, digression to ancient writers like Paul is not distraction, but actually deliberate, deliberate discourse. And so we've been studying in the uh, uh, discourse, I mean, uh, uh, digression for last, you know, uh, five weeks. And today, finally, we are returning to main sort of story of the second Corinthians. And then let me refresh your memory about the Paul's situation here. Paul sent the Titus to Corinthian church before he decided to plan, uh, visit them. Because it's a last meeting, which was a Paul's second time with the Corinthian, did not go well. After that meeting, Paul sent a letter, what he called a harsh letter, or letter of sorrow, to clear his, uh, his instruction and correct them. 
actually rebuked them. And after the uh, so so Paul decided to send the Titus to see how Corinthians were responding now. And uh, Paul didn't see Titus at Troas. That made Paul so anxious that even though God opened the door for Paul to start a church in Troas, and Paul, more than anything, he loved to you know, plant a God's church or body of Christ everywhere, but he could not do it because so distracted, so concerned, and disheartened and worried about Corinthian situation. So he went on to Macedonia looking for Titus. And Paul was anxious once again about his last confrontation with the Corinthians. And then we have to recognize that unlike today, back then there was no texting, no email, no, no phone, no even uh, telegraph. So he did not know how unruly Corinthians were reacting. He, so far, Paul heard only about their sorrow and negative reactions. That's why Paul sent Titus to Corinth and was anxious, anxiously waiting for his report. And finally, he met Titus in Macedonia, the area north of Corinth. And the Titus brought the good news that Paul's hard, harsh letter led Corinthians not just to sorrow, but also and ultimately to repentance. So Paul felt relieved. I bet Paul shouted hallelujah many times. Have you, you know, have you, you we all know that experience, right? You are really anxious about it's a very fragile relationship or risk, you know, some major uh, a bump in relationship and you're hoping the best. And then when that happened, it's such a relief. So let me continue to read in verse 7. And then not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only a little while. Here, we need to make a one uh, important uh, observation. That is, what is our, your image? What is our image of a, a, a fruitful, faithful Christian or Christian life? Somehow in the back of our mind, do you have a picture of a faithful Christian like a Paul, somebody with an unwavering faith and solid obedience to God? is never afraid of uh, anything that coming, always rejoicing, even in adversity. You know, if you think that a Christian life is a smooth sail of a constant praise and celebration of love and divine affirmation all the time, in other words, sunshine from heaven all day long, you need to read today's text or 2 Corinthians carefully. Christian journey is not sunshiny. Actually, Christian journey is stormy. Christian journey is a stormy, not sunshiny. You know, whenever I read a Paul's second letter to Corinthians, I actually feel very vindicated about my own Christian ministry and life. Because here is a Paul, the greatest apostle that I know, and actually I'm named after him. 
but his ministry and life didn't seem to be a smooth sail or seamless progress at all. He has a lot of bumpy ministry and life. That makes me kind of uh, relieved about my own bumps and my own struggles. Reading Paul's disclosure of his life, his interior life especially, in passages like today's, made me actually chuckle. You know, didn't Apostle Paul uh, tell us to rejoice all the time, to praise God without ceasing, give thanks, give thanks in everything? Didn't he say the famous, you know, Philippians 4, that we shouldn't have anxiety about anything, but should commit all to God by praying with the thanksgiving? You know, today's passage shows me again, Paul has anxiety, even a little bit of depression and worry, struggled with other people's reaction to him. Just like me, just like you, just like us. So verse 5, Paul said that when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Uh-huh, no rest. We were harassed in every turn. Conflict on the outside, fears within. And then verse 8 made me laugh because Paul said, If I cause you sorrow by letter, I do not regret. Though I did regret it. What is this? Paul seems to be almost bipolar here. He seems to be resolute but regretting all these rebels. That he was, Paul was a hard in the outside but softy in the inside. You know, sometimes that's what really love makes us. Love of God makes us firm with God's truth, but inside we are softy. Because softy with the people that God led us to. But I want to say this, a fact is clear. Everybody has a regret. Even great Apostle Paul had a regret. Regret is an inevitable fact of a life. So having a regret is not a real issue. So don't feel bad about having a regret. The real issue is what do we do with our regret? That's the key. What do we, what we do with our regret? That's, a very, that's, that's the real issue. And with that, let us learn how to redeem our regret by transforming it into godly sorrow. So let me read chapter 7, the key passage, verse 9 and 10. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorry led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The first and the foremost thing that we need to do with our regret is to see it in the light of God's love and truth. When we see our mistake and sin, the first thing we need to do is to see and recognize and find God in our sin. We must recognize God's pain in our sin. So see and recognize God's pain in our sin. That's the first step. Today, Paul tells us there are two kinds of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Literally, godly sorrow is a sorrow of God, and worldly sorrow is a sorrow of the world. What is a godly sorrow? Before we answer that question, you know, we need to really ask a very important preliminary and uh, theological question first. That is, 
Does God have sorrow? Can God grieve? Listen to me carefully. In Paul's time, Greek philosophers, such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all Greek thinkers, did not believe God, the highest and the transcending being of the universe, cannot suffer. Not that because of sorrow is a sign of weakness and the character of an imperfect being. So true God, which Greeks call the one, the spirit, the mind, has a no sorrow because such a God, such a being, is utterly transcendent, immaterial, and perfect in himself. The technical or philosophical or even theological term for divine, so-called impassibility that God cannot suffer, is called apatheia. Apatheia. Because God is utterly transcendent, I mean, apatheia, from which we have an English word, apathy. Apathy, you know. You heard that uh, uh, word pathos, right? Apathy is literally a plus pathos. Pathos means a suffering. You know, have somebody called you pathetic? You know, sometimes my family call me, oh, you are so pathetic, you know. Well, I'm pathetic because I'm not, I'm not perfect. But you cannot say God is a pathetic because God is perfect. So everybody, listen to me, including Jewish people and Christians, everyone believe God is God of apatheia or apathetic God. That God does not have suffering, cannot suffer. Do you hear me? Now, that's a big question to Christians because we believe in the suffering of God. We believe the suffering of incarnate God. So how do we under so how do we drive this to to you know opposite sort of a truth or fact? Listen to me carefully. Christians said God is impassable or does not have any sorrow or pain by nature. By nature, God is impassable. But God has sorrows or decide to have sorrows and pain by His grace. So God became suffering God by His choice. And that choice we call it grace. Christ, God decided to love humans and that means God opened Himself, God opened His heart to pain and sorrow. Because when you love somebody, you become vulnerable. Everybody who is in love, you understand that love is not, love is strong, but uh, you know, strong in kind of make, you know, strong in the different sense. When you love somebody, your beloved's problem and pain becomes your problem and pain. Loving someone means experiencing pain and sorrow. And that's why I see that God's pain and sorrow reveals how much God loves us and human beings. And uh, every time, every week that I go over the prayer requests of everyone in our church, especially through house church, more than half of our uh, uh, parents, their prayer request is uh, their children's needs and problems. And I totally understand. I pray their problem or problems of uh, their children, needs of their uh, children, as if theirs, because it's theirs. 
the children in, in our heart. Just like that, we are in God's heart. That's why God has suffering. Now, when you commit a sin or regrettable error, guess who feels the worst about your mistake? That's the one who loves you most. And who loves you most? Not yourself, not your parents. The one who loves you more than anybody, including yourself and your parents, that is God. That's what Paul meant by God's sorrow or godly sorrow. And to recognize God's pain in my sin, that is a first step of a transforming and redeeming my regret. And the best example of such a transforming regret or repentance is a King David. When you look at the David Psalm 51, which he wrote after committing the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, you will find a strange but a significant confession and recognition in verse 4. David said, Against you only, against you, against you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David said, His sin of adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent premeditated murder of Uriah, the Bathsheba's husband, was against only God. Anybody who knows that story, you should, you know, just like first time I read this, I was puzzled. Because David committed sin not only to God, but also Uriah and the other Israel soldiers who are innocently killed or became a collateral damage. Because David gave this despicable evil order to the commander of Uriah, Joab, the next time you guys fight with whatever enemies, find the most fierce part of the battle and put the Uriah there and all of you retreat quickly so that he will die. He basically ordered, kill him secretly, make it accidental death. So David committed the sin not only to God, but uh, others. And then when Uriah died, other Israelite soldiers died. And today, why in the world did David say he sinned only against God? David was not ignoring other victims here. What David was confessing is recognizing the greatest victim of his sin was God, who loved him and chose him to be the king of Israel. David saying, I failed you, God, more than anyone. I betrayed your trust more than anyone's trust or goodwill to me. David recognized that he pained and disgraced God more than any other victims. That's why David confessed against you, only against you I have sinned. That is a true repentance. True repentance happens when we recognize God's pain in my sin. Let me repeat that. True repentance happens when we recognize God's pain in my sin. You know, when and how does the cross of Christ save us? When the cross of Christ becomes my cross. When I recognize Jesus died not on Golgotha, but on my Golgotha, in my cross, 
That's when repentance and redemption take place. In contrast to David, there is a another, there is a false there is a false repentance in the in the book of in the first Samuel. That is a King Saul's repentance. Because King Saul had a so-called worldly sorrow. Saul also disobeyed God, but he felt bad about his failure to disobey, I mean to obey God, not because he recognized God's pain, but because he realized his potential cost of sin and his personal penalty. So if you look at the first Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, after you know Samuel confronted Saul's disobedience, this is what Saul said. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul felt sorry, not for God, but for himself. To King Saul, repentance was a PR public relations stunt. This was the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow recognized God's pain in my sin, whereas worldly sorrow recognized my pain, my penalty, more than anything. Godly sorrow repents because of sin itself. Worldly sorrow regret because of the exposure of a sin. The worldly sorrow regrets only when sin was caught not when sin was committed. How about us? Are we more concerned with being caught with the sin than, than committing sin? Do we fear the penalty of sin more than the pain of sin that God suffered from? Brennan Manning, a Christian writer, once said this, the temptation of this age is to look good without being good. Let me, let me say it again. Temptation of the age today is to look good without being good. Are we more interested in looking good rather than being good? Are we really seriously interested in being good? Then we must recognize the pain of God for us when we fail to be good, or when we fall into bad. When we regret, we need to see God's gracious pain for us against our sin. Why? That's where repentance begins. We have to remember, Christian repentance is based on God's goodness for us, more than our badness against Him. God's goodness revealed in His gracious pain in our sin, motivate us to change ourselves with a hope. You know, repenting of a badness is anybody can do. We repent because God still loves us and feels the pain of our sin. That's why we repent. Now, I want to explore more this second truth about transforming regret. So when we see and recognize God's pain in our sin, we repent and experience God's saving grace. So let me read, uh, continue to read uh, verse uh, 9. I mean, let me read again, verse 9 and so forth. So now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. 
And verse 10, godly sorrow brings a re repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what earnest, earnest to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did wrong or on account of injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. Paul said here, For you became sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow is precious because it leads us to repentance, and repentance leads us to salvation. Here by salvation, Paul does not mean you know, entering into heaven, but experiencing God's saving love and the restored relationship. So, Paul said, verse 11, that see what this godly sorrow has produced you. Godly sorrow, Paul said, produces earnestness, conscientious clarity, willingness to see justice, and longing to reconnect with Paul and say sorry to him. When we have moved God's gracious sorrow for us, we begin to mend our broken relationship with the others. That's what Corinthian Christians were doing. As they regretted with God's sorrow, they were eager to restore their broken relationship or sour relationship with Apostle Paul, and eager to implement the justice that Paul once asked him to carry out. By the way, the justice Paul asked them was to discipline one of their members who committed this very willful, horrendous, scandalous sexual sin. Now, after feeling godly sorrow, Corinthian Christians, they want to faithful to Paul's you know, correction. And here he is, once again, that the, the godly sorrow is so precious. And when you have, when we have a sorrow, we need to really, really don't let go of sorrow easily. Henry David Thoreau once said this: "Make the make the most of your regret. Never smother your sorrow, but tend and cherish it until it comes to have a separate and integral interest. To regret deeply is to love afresh." So Thoreau was telling us. When you have a regret, don't let it go easily, but take it to God. Work it out with God. And that's how you begin to, you, you, you begin anew, afresh, a deeper, and wiser. So Paul now wants, so now, after Paul talking about godly sorrow, Paul also warns us about regret without godly sorrow which is a worldly sorrow. And the worldly sorrow will deepen our guilt and shame to death. Verse, seven, I mean, verse 10, once again, worldly sorrow brings death. Here, death does not mean people make, a, you know, I mean, you know, regret, you know worldly sorrow make a people, you know, uh, 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 commit a suicide or things like that. No, worldly sorrow makes our hearts heavy and it withers our soul. And worldly sorrow makes a regret, the negative reflection becomes the worst and the sharpest pain. So even though we are alive, we are smelling death 
in us. How? Worldly sorrow depletes our hope for the future and detains us in the past forever. Let me repeat that. Worldly sorrow depletes our hope for the future and detains us, ourselves, in the past forever. Worldly sorrow makes us dwell on what somebody said, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Someone said, it is not what you are, it's not what you don't become that hurts. Worldly sorrow makes you live today with the yesterday's baggage. Worldly sorrow is a reflection without hope and gratitude. Worldly sorrow dwells in shame and guilt. It's excessive. It's exterminating. Truly worldly sorrow is one of the Satan's favorite weapons. The saying that devil takes no prisoner is true. Devil came to deceive and destroy. Without God's grace, no one can escape from this deadly deception of a worldly sorrow of a devil. Satan, by definition, is, is an accuser. When we make a, he tempts us to make a mistake, and when we make a mistake, Satan brings all the guilt and shame and sandwiches us between shame and guilt, and then makes us hate ourselves. And without God, we cannot get out of this. Someone said, worldly sorrow has a deadly vortex. What is a vortex of a worldly sorrow or regret without grace of God? It is a being sucked into three different powerful winds called self-pity, blame, and anger. Self-pity, blame, and anger. This is the deadly vortex of a worldly sorrow. And self-pity, what is a self-pity? Self-pity means to enjoy feeling sorry for yourself. Woe to me. I'm dealt with a bad card of a life. I'm, you know, have a pity on me. Self-pity means you're throwing party of a pity. You, 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 you're partying pity with yourself and then inviting others. And former gamble, uh, ga uh, 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 gambling addict uh, once said this, when you are an addict, you really want people to leave you alone so that you can feel sorry for yourself and keep justifying your addiction. He said self-pity justifies self-abuses. Self-pity justifies self-abuses. What about blame? Blame takes, always takes a regret in the wrong direction. Had I met a different person, I would have been having better. It totally takes a, you know, responsibility to a different person, different direction. What about anger? Anger is a highest gear or high gear of regret and worldly sorrow. Anger is dangerous. James told us, James 1.20 tells us, the human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. In fact, the human anger, often produced by self-righteousness. Yes, 
There is self-righteousness in human anger. When you find yourself in regret with any, any one of these deadly vortex of self-pity, blame, and anger, you need to cry out to God for mercy. And God is unmerciful. God is unmerciful. Dostoevsky in his novel, Crime and Punishment, once said this, The darker the night, the brighter the star. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. It's well said. Someone said that regret is like a fertilizer. By itself, it is nothing but a dung. It's stinky. It draws nothing but flies. But when you put the fertilizer in the right place, it can enhance. It can actually produce life and fruit. When we place our regret in God's perspective, in God's heart, in God's hand, it enhances our soul. So now let's see the the word ultimate godly sorrow produce. So, so far the two, two, two truths we learned about the godly sorrow is that God, you know, we have to see and recognize God's pain in our sin. And number two is that with God's pain, we can really, uh, we can repent and we can be saved. And now let me tell you the third point. Godly sorrow always refreshes and revives others. Look at the verse 13. Paul said, By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Here Paul says, Godly sorrow encourages others. He used the positive result of a godly sorrow not only to Corinthians, but also people around Corinthians, just like him and Titus. And Paul here uses the positive words like encouraged, delighted, and refreshed. The regret of Corinthians with a godly sorrow let them not only for their own repentance and salvation, but also revitalization and rejoicing of others. This section, the 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13 to 16, is the most joyful section of the entire letter. And as you know, 2 Corinthians is the most difficult letter Paul left to us or ever wrote. So let's read how joyful and revived Paul was. So let me read verse 14. I had boasted to him about you, it means Titus, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. After his affection for you is all the greater, when he remembers that you are all obedient and receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad that I can have a complete confidence in you. Now, look at me. Paul was so joyful, and here he used the key word of his letter to Corinthians. That key word is a boasting. That word that characterizes Paul's relationship and ministry with the Corinthian church, word boast, was used 55 times in the New Testament and 32 times in Paul's letter. In 2 Corinthians, Paul used the word boast 22 times. 22 times. Pauline scholars think that uh, Corinthians were boastful people, boasting people. 
And their problem was that they are boasting wrong things. So if you look at the 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see some of the things that Paul actually said, so no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos and Cephas, or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours. Paul was rebuking them, you guys are boasting wrong thing. In order to, instead of boasting God, you are boasting about human leaders, whatever, you know, things that you like. So Corinthian problem is a problem of a wrong boasting. So according to New Testament scholars, Paul was using this a very familiar word or term or characteristic of a Corinthians. And Paul was now turning in that, finally your repentance with the godly sorrow make me boast about you. And my boasting about you to, to Titus was correct. That's what Paul was saying. You are worthy about my boasting. Everything that I boasted about you is right. You know, just like, uh, have you, you know, when you recommend something to people and that person comes back and say that your recommendation was uh, right on. It was a bullseye. It was uh, so right. I so enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your recommendation. How do you feel? You know, just like a happy matchmaker for new lovers or a happy parent for a child's new success or a happy doctor for a fully recovered patient, Paul told them, he was encouraged. He was so proud of them. He now feels so much affection to them that he even said that my confidence in you is complete. I kind of uh, smile and laugh because, you know, actually I was very touched because who was Paul boasting about? It's a Corinthians. As you know, they're not good Christians. <laughs> they are troublemakers. They're pain. They are real troublemakers, but one thing they did right, that was repenting, right? And Paul just, you know, happy euphoria. He said, it's just like a parents, you know, with a troubled child. And then when the child did the one thing right, they forget all the million things he did wrong. Oh my God, that's you. That's you. I know that's that. I know you, you could do that. You know, they were so happy. I can see Paul's parents' heart. That's the heart of the parents and the heart of the spiritual shepherd. When your spiritual child or your physical child does one thing right, you just, it, it's nothing, nothing take you to third heaven like that. Paul was so happy today. That's what our repentance does to people around us. When we repent with a godly sorrow, we bring so much joy to God and people around us. So let me ask you this question. What would Christ boast about for us and about each one of us? I really pray that Christ can boast about us and the Holy Spirit can use us confidently. And then on this note, the last point of my message today is that I want us to remember important facts and truths about repentance and revival. Whenever gospel leads people to repentance and spiritual awakening, remember, gospel always creates a social and institutional reform. Christian gospel is both personal and social. Do you remember what Paul said in the 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18? That anyone is in Christ is a new creation, the old has gone and new has become. 
And then what did he say? As a new creation, we are not only reconciled to God through Christ, but we receive the ministry of a reconciliation. Notice this. We are not only reconciled to God, but also reconcilers of God. We are not only redeemed, we are also becoming reformers. So when we are reconciled to God, we take our sin seriously. We take a sin not only individually and personally, but we take a sin. It's a structural, institutional side of sin. So when I talk, so for instance, let me tell you this. You know, last Saturday, not this Saturday, the week before, you know, Halloween. I'm talking about Halloween. 1517, on the eve of All Saints Day, Martin Luther went to Wittenberg Castle's church. And the front door, he nailed it. He posted a famous 95 thesis, which proclaimed the salvation by faith alone and the supreme authority of scripture over everything, including papal authority. When Luther nailed the 95 Thesis, it was not doctrinal reform. It was not just a religious reform. It was political and institutional challenge. So what happened to Luther after that? You know what happened to Luther? He was called to stand before political religious trial called the Imperial Diet of Worm. Diet is old word for the Congress. And before all the princes of the Holy Roman Empire, Luther became person of a non grata. And he became a wanted man. Pope gave an order. Anybody can kill Luther will receive a thanks of the church. That was not a religious persecution. That was a political persecution and legal persecution. This is why John Wesley, 200 years later, in famous Wesleyan Methodist revival, he said this, there is no holiness but a social holiness. And the people don't realize that John Wesley did not just preach the gospel. He connected the gospel to anti-slavery movement, and he campaigned the abolition of slavery. If you look into the story, one of the John Wesley's difficulty was appointing the leader of a Methodist church in the United States. Because several leaders of a Methodist church, in United, Methodist leader in the United States, they were slaveholders. And John Wesley asked them, release your slaves and embrace the gospel. Some of them refused. That was his struggle. We have to recognize Wesley's revival, it led, it didn't just you know, save individual souls. It led the social reform of Great Britain that one of his followers, William Wilberforce, lonely, single-handedly, Proclaim the injustice, this moral evil of slavery for 22 years in British Parliament. Today, many of you don't make any qualms about that, but back then, 
he received a lot of flex and criticism from Christians, pastors. Why? Slavery was an international industry back then. Somebody calculated uh, if, you, if a British, um, Great Britain gave up the slavery, they would lose a 15% of a GDP back then. It was a financially, financially, it's a very adverse decision. We all love to sing, we actually sang this morning, the amazing grace, part of amazing grace of uh, you know, John Newton. Did you know that amazing grace was an anthem for the abolition of a slavery? Amazing grace. I want to say this. Christian gospel is always threat to those in power. Whether it's a left people or right people, whoever has a power, Christian gospel is always threat. Because a Christian gospel demands us to reform a new social identity that welcomes everybody in the image of God and welcome of Christ. So racial reconciliation and systemic, systemic you know, racism is not a political issue. It is a theological issue. It's a task of our generation. Someone says slavery is America's original sin. We need to learn about it. That's why I told you to watch the 13th commandment, amendment. And we need, we, as a gospel proclaimer, we who live for Christ, we want to follow Christ with all of our heart and mind and soul, we cannot ignore this racial injustice in our society. Once again, we have to be anti-racist. Only racist that we will become is a human racist. And that's the gospel. This is not a political I'm preaching. And by the way, politics is not exempt from the, you know, from the pulpit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians you know, 10, 31, that uh, everything we do, whether we don't drink, everything we do for the glory of God, everything including the politics. Who said politics is you know, extend from the you know, church? Christian church, from the beginning, was a very political. Gospel was a political. Gospel redeems not only people, but because it redeems a politics too. Both the liberals and conservatives. They need to hear the full gospel, radical gospel. That's what we do. That's what I do. That's why the Karl Barth stood up against the Nazis. You know, Nazis were actually pious German Lutherans. Gospel called the true Christian to stand up in time of injustice. I... Soldier pray right. We don't want to be bystanders. We want to be proactive. Not righteous, not self-righteous, not like the progressive liberals, but with a heart-aching Christians. As a followers of Christ, whoever is mistreated, it aches us. Because Christ came to give a gospel to the poor and oppressed and then marginalized. We are the followers of such a Savior and the Lord. We are in a critical junction in our country. 
I don't know in the future how the historians will record the evangelicals of 2020. Dear brothers and sisters, let us really pray humbly and desperately for the racial reconciliation in our country. Let's not victimize the people or, you know, let us try to make uh, every, you know, our, our uh, law enforcement and everybody really be, you know, better in serving one another. We are not demonizing anybody. We're just pointing out, we want to really work out. That's a true repentance. I want for us to be a pro proactive agent of God, not only saving VIPs, but ultimately bringing this, this is just society for the common good. Let's pray.